Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Norman Finkelstein, author and scholar whose latest book is called I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It. Norman, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. This book is a departure for you, I think. Uh, you're not primarily writing about Israel-Palestine, which has been the prime focus of your scholarship. Uh, you are offering also a really extended critique of the left, and you're saying this as a lifelong leftist. So let me first ask you to talk about this book, why you wrote it, and what kind of conversation you hope it elicits about what being a leftist is. I am a person of the left and have been for the whole of my life, probably, you know, I would say consciously a person of the left from maybe age 15 or 16. I came from a home saturated in politics, uh, and my parents were on the political spectrum, on the left, you might even say on the uh, far left, at least in words, I won't say in, in actions. Uh, and it was clear that Two phenomena were happening at the same time. Number one, there was the Bernie Sanders candidacy or campaign, which was preceded by the Occupy movement and several other uh, milestones. And they culminated, they climaxed in the Bernie Sanders campaign. And it was an extremely hopeful moment. And it was actually an exhilarating moment for a person of my politics because it seemed to materialize uh, a possibility, which was only a textbook possibility up until that moment. Namely, if you read uh, Karl Marx and his uh, successors, there was always uh, a core idea was this homogenization of the working class, the polarization of wealth between um, a handful of people who basically control everything and own everything. And then on the other pole, uh, those, the overwhelming majority who had nothing, who owned nothing and had nothing. And then if you read Marx's Capital, he calls this the absolute general law of capitalist accumulation, the polarization of wealth uh, and uh, riches at one pole, misery and exploitation on another. Well, I grew up in an era where that clearly was a, a textbook idea. It wasn't a real idea. There was a robust middle class in the United States. And everybody, as the famous expression had it, was in the middle class or aspiring to be in the middle class. That was the era in which I grew up. So my politics were completely marginal and completely irrelevant to the real world. Well, things started to change quite significantly beginning in the early 1980s. And by 2020, our time, uh, there has occurred that polarization of wealth, uh, and there has occurred that relative homogenization of the working class. It's not completely homogenized, but you could say 80% of humanity uh, has no future. Young people, uh, in particular, they have a futureless future, and then there is, you, you can estimate about 20%. In New York, you would say people in finance and people in IT, uh, they're doing fine. And everybody else who seems to be, my impression, everybody else who seems to be in retail or hospitality or some other dead-end gig are doing very poorly and getting worse, and it's regressing. Um, so uh, 
Bernie Sanders, the Bernie Sanders campaign was the culmination of those tendencies, which I said began probably around the early 1980s. It was extremely hopeful. It was exhilarating. You saw real possibilities. But at the, on the other side, a, a second left, or calling itself a left, emerged, and that was the identity politics movement. And the identity politics movement, of course, it had some roots in the left. So uh, when uh, we were growing up, and not just we growing up, the tradition to which I identify, the revolutionary Marxist tradition, the social revolutionary socialist tradition, there was always this uh, focus on class. However, there was always a recognition that beyond class, there are certain questions which weren't reducible to class. So in my generation, we had what was called the woman question. We recognize the status, the oppression of women had more elements than the class element. The Negro question, as it was called back then, the Jewish question, as it was called back then. So there was a recognition of all these, so to speak, questions, which have as their primary source of oppression class, but there was another aspect. And a large part of the left tried to theorize, make sense of how do these this basic oppression of class intersect with the other kinds of oppression, not reducible to class. So the left always had that. Kimberly Crenshaw thinks she invented a new concept called intersectionality. Intersectionality goes back to the dawn of the Marxist socialist movement, as anybody who's familiar with that history knows. So, however, there was a problem here. And here's where I became quite irritated and uh, I should say motivated to write the book. It became very clear that in the moment of truth, if we might use that expression, which was the Bernie Sanders campaign, the identity politics was being uh, instrumentalized, weaponized in order to stop the Bernie campaign. So we had those who claimed that the Bernie campaign was all about white men. And they said it was all about Bernie bros. So the women chimed in, best known being Gloria Steinem, who tried to discredit the Bernie campaign by saying, oh, yeah, it's true. Some women go along also, but they just go to the rallies to meet guys, which, by the way, was so off the mark. It was not only deeply condescending and and uh, disgusting, but it was all so off the mark. Um, I was very active in the Bernie campaign, and I went on the buses out of town to campaign outside the state. I have to say, I was deeply struck, deeply moved, deeply touched by the seriousness of these young people. You know, in my generation, um, you went on the bus to Washington, which was commonplace for a demonstration against the war. And before you knew it, the bus was saturated with marijuana smoke. Everybody's passing around a joint. And I have to say, I come from a kind of austere Puritan background, and I was slightly put off by it, but that was, you know, the hippie culture. When you went on the buses, the men, the women, young men, young women, you know, your age and younger, and the Bernie campaign, they were so serious. 
so focused, so not lightheaded. But along comes Gloria Steinem. It's just about meeting boys. Then along comes Tanahisi Coates. Bernie's weak on the reparations question. Bernie has a serious problem with black people. And Kimberly Crenshaw, she comes along and she says, well, the real action is happening in corporate America, not with those, now I'm paraphrasing, not with those old Jewish schmucks like Bernie Sanders. The real action is Amazon is acknowledging identity politics. And so there was this confluence of identity politics spokespersons doing everything in their power, including, I have to say, and I say it with regret, including Angela Davis, who was using her platform to attack Bernie on the race issue. And so um, I quote in the book a passage from Leon Trotsky, where he says, you have all these types who pretend to be super radical. But then he says, at the moment of truth, they reveal their true colors. And that's exactly what happened. The Bernie campaign was the moment of truth. Where do you stand? And all and, the and, it, and Mormon, it's the moment of truth. It's the moment of truth because that's the moment where Bernie's candidacy is the best hope for material gains for exactly. all of these marginalized people that these pundits claim to speak for. Exactly. This was a genuinely radical movement, the most radical movement certainly in the United States in half a century or more, more than half a century, close to a century since the 1930s. And they were doing everything in their power to sabotage it. And uh, it was at that point that I started to think hard and fast, what's going on here? And I did something which is my, so to speak, my métier. I'm known, I have a reputation, I think deserved, of being a forensic scholar. Namely, I go through documents, I look for logic, I look for reasoning, I check the footnotes, and I'll tell you the truth, I went into this project pretty much tabula rasa. I hadn't studied it closely. I knew a, a tidbit of African-American history, but the field has expanded exponentially since I studied it as a young man. It's a very serious discipline right now. I don't really know the literature, and I'm, I'm frank about that. I've written mostly on, uh, as you say, the, uh, the um, Israel-Palestine conflict. There were a couple of books on the Nazi Holocaust. There wrote a book on Gandhi. Uh, but this was terra incognita for me. It was something new. So I just sat down and I said, you know what? I'm not going to read the secondary literature. I'm not going to read background. I'm just going to sit down, open these books, and apply a simple test. Does this make any sense? Is there any no, man, these books are these books are, for example, uh, White Fragility by Robin uh, D'Angelo. D'Angelo, uh, uh, yeah. Start from the Beginning and How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' article on reparations, Kimberly Crenshaw's article on intersectionality. And I just sat down and I asked the question, does this make any sense? And I have to say, I went through it methodically. Uh, some people felt in excess of methodically. Uh, the chapter on Ibram X. Kendi is over 100 pages. But the truth be told, uh, and here I'm not being facetious, the truth be told, 
Candy's book is being used everywhere. It is, has been widely adopted. And nobody, I'm saying nobody, has gone through it chapter and verse and seen whether this makes any sense, what he's writing. And so even though I admit that the book is exhaustive in ways which some people might find painful, on the other hand, I think it was a needed uh, exercise uh, to apply the most uh, demanding scholarly standards and to see, does this hold up? And it doesn't. Uh, I also have a very long chapter, the longest chapter in the book on Barack Obama, because he became a kind of, uh, he became a kind of woke test. Uh, you, you proved your wokeness by being pro-Obama or praising Obama's brilliance and whatever else. And um, that too was a question of curiosity to me because speaking strictly as a lay person from afar, I saw no evidence of any brilliance there. I didn't see any evidence of any political acumen there. And so I did the same thing. I sat down, went through the record and see what I came up with. And I came up with a lot of zeros. And one of the magic uh, qualities of a zero is you could take four zeros and add them up, and guess what? You still get zero. So uh, there was nothing there. And then the question then became, if there's nothing there, then why has it gotten so much traction? Why has this identity politics got so much traction? And my conclusion is, that it's basically been weaponized by the Democratic Party for two reasons. Number one, they want to replace their white working class base, which was their, uh, uh, which was identified with the white, with the working class since FDR, since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They wanted to we uh, displace it, replace it with identity politics. And number two, because the identity politics was a useful weapon at this juncture in time. You see, that's the key point. The Bernie Sanders campaign, or the Bernie Sanders, let's call it idea, it came to fruition. You recall, Bernie, when people used to say about Bernie Sanders is, oh, Bernie Sanders, he's been saying the same thing for 50 years. Yes, it's true. He's been saying the same thing for 50 years, except guess what? The times caught up with him. And now what he had to say actually resonated. It resonated in ways, as you recall, he didn't imagine. When he went out in 2016, he says, what the hell? I'll go out and give a few stump speeches for socialism. And he was absolutely shocked by what happened. He did not expect it. He was totally bewildered. Of course, by 2020, he was seasoned. He knew what he wanted to do, how to achieve it, and the gains were significant. The shortcomings were also significant, but that's for a separate uh, discussion. So the key is this identity politics emerged as a political force just at the moment where a radical socialist workers' movement aimed at the redistribution of wealth and the radical transformation of our society became a real possibility. And it had to be stopped. And the Democratic Party used, uh, I should say the powers that be, used 
on the Democratic side, the uh, Republican side used white working class identity politics to try to divide the working class. The uh, Democratic Party uh, attempted to use identity politics. You have an example in your book of how this impacted, um, you know, political culture and media culture. And, you know, one example you give is from uh, Democracy Now!, which a show that I care a lot about because I used to work there. And I also think it sort of set the standard for progressive discussion, that it was sort of a good bellwether, a, a good gauge of where the progressive movement was at. And I think it did, a, you know, historically has done a very good job at that. But in the 2020 primary, there's this line on the show, the way they report Elizabeth Warren dropping out of the race. Uh, you quote this. They say that when Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the race, they say now the race is down to two older white men, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Senator Elizabeth Warren has suspended her bid for the presidency, leaving the 2020 Democratic presidential race down to two older white men, former Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Bernie Sanders. As if that's what defines Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, just they're just old white men and there's no difference between the two. Yeah, if you look at if you look at it through the lens of identity politics, that happens to be accurate. From the lens of identity politics, they're both old white males. Yeah. But if you look at it through the lens of class and possibility for radical change, I want to I want to just make a point because I don't want to sound too much like this old leftist like Eugene Debs uh, from 1900. Uh, it's not just a matter of class politics, like either you do or you don't believe in class struggle. Though I was reading a book yesterday by Paul Sweezy, one of my mentors, the great uh, uh, Marxist economist, and he did say class struggle was the essence of what he called historical materialism or, or Marxism. But setting that aside, the point is what you said a moment ago. It's not like either you believe in class struggle or you don't believe in class struggle. It's about whether you're committed to a radical transformation of our society, which will improve the lives of masses of people. That's the issue. Identity politics, its um, essence is just to get a fair representation of minorities in the ruling class. So since 13% of Americans are black, the ruling class should be 13% black. And same thing with women, and then you have this vast multiplication of minorities. I have a long footnote in the book from my friend Sanjeev Mahajan, who's a mathematician. And he says, he takes Ken, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's logic, and he says, if you follow her logic closely, there are literally, literally, this is not hyperbole, it's a mathematician speaking, and he gives his uh, formulas, there are literally an infinitude of oppressed groups. And each of these oppressed groups wants equal parity representation. Well, that's just a formula for dividing us. Each group jockeying for power, each group jockeying for recognition. And the dream of the Marxist tradition was to try to create a homogeneous population which would be committed to the same goal. Because you have to remember, we have on our side only one thing. The ruling elites 
they have the money. They have the political power. They control all the institutions of the state and what's called civil society institutions. They have the money, they have the power, they have the organization. They're very well organized. Those 10,000 think tanks and organization and you know chambers of commerce, they have a vast ramified network of organization. We have only one thing on our site, really two, but our, from an organizational point of view, we have numbers. We have numbers. We have, as the uh, slogan of Occupy Inspiring said, we are the 99%. And the only way we can affect radical change, impose the will of the 99%, I think it's closer to 80%, but let's not quarrel. Oh, I forgot to disconnect. The only way we can uh, impose our historical agenda is by unifying, by find a, finding a common denominator that will be a force to reckon with in terms of numbers. That's why when you read someone like Rosa Luxemburg, she keeps saying the job of a, uh, of a revolutionary is education and organization. Education and organization. You educate the working class to see their real goals. They're constantly being tricked, duped, deceived by the ruling elites. You have to show them where their real interests lie. And secondly, organize, 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 which is the slogan of the Wobblies. Organize the, the uh, international workers of the world, uh, at one time a formidable organization. Organize, organize, organize. And um, the whole identity politics is about disorganizing by, create, by creating, fragmenting the working class, uh, fractionalizing the working class, turning people against each other. When you read Robin DiAngelo, what's her main message? Her main message can be summarized very simply. Her main message is to black people, she, knowing white people, don't trust white people. Don't trust them. They're racist to the core. She literally says, white people, they all think, meaning black people, they all think black people are apes and gorillas. That's what she says. So the goal is to sow distrust, to fragment this unity that's been, you know, history has brought forth. A very exciting moment. It was a thrilling moment for me during the George Floyd demonstrations. Because, uh, first of all, I was the only one over 30 in these demonstrations. Literally, I was the one person for a simple reason. Not because I'm Jesus, but because of COVID. Older people didn't want to go out. The George Floyd demonstrations coincide with COVID. Right. And so I was the only one. I said, what the hell? This is a moment in history. You know, Rosa Luxemburg during the 1905 revolution in Russia, uh, she was in Germany at that point. She was a prominent uh, figure in the German Socialist Party. And the revolution breaks out in Russia, not 1917, but 1905. Everyone says, Rosa, don't go, don't go. It's too dangerous. She said, what are you talking about? I've lived my whole life for a revolution. There's no way I'm going to miss it. And I had, you know, I'm not Rosa Luxemburg, one of the most extraordinary, probably the most extraordinary fig figure in the history of socialism. 
Uh, I'm not Rosa Luxemburg, but these were mass demonstrations. I'm a person of the left. I'm always talking about leftist politics. I'm not missing out. And I went out uh, to, to witness it. It was a deeply, like the Bernie buses out of town. When I was a leftist, you know, being a white leftist in the era of black power, it was a kind of noblesse oblige. You went out, not as a... Uh, uh, not as a subject, not as part of the oppression, but you were a white person, uh, you know, you go to the rallies, clench fist, off the pigs, off the pigs, you know, totally ridiculous, insane. This is completely different. This is completely different because your generation has been homogenized by the capitalist system such that someone like yourself, someone like a roommate of yours, you're just a tiny notch among black, above black people. You don't have a. You're not going into the middle class. Your generation, you're not going to. You don't. You're not going to get a forty-hour-a-week job. You're going to have gigs just like blacks have gigs, and unusually, I know you wouldn't understand these things because a huge chasm in age separates us. You don't. We didn't live with black people. We didn't grow up with black people. Black people were a a alien thing. Now, sometimes you would deeply identify with them. I deeply identified as a youth with Angela Davis. But it was something afar, many degrees removed, not six degrees removed. Your generation, very different. You have four people living in a house. One person may be Black, one person may be white, one person may be Latino, one person may be uh, whatever. I have a, a Jewish friend, and he's quite, you know, comes from a conservative background. So a young friend, your age, your age, correspondent who I call a friend. I said, so who are your roommates? He says, oh, I have two black women as my roommates. Conservative Jew, two black women, unthinkable in my generation. So because you now have real bonds with blacks, Latinos, people of different sexual orientations, real living bonds, and what's as important, and maybe even more important, you're just a notch above black people. You're just a notch above. And so there was, you you watched it. I was very struck during the George Floyd demonstrations by the vehemence, the anger of the young white people. They were so angry. Now, part of the anger was identification with what happened to George Floyd and what we used to call my generation, killer cops. But that was, in my opinion, that was just the surface. Beneath it, white people, black people, they were angry at the system, the system that had fucked up their lives and fucked up their futures. And the cops are the representatives, you know, the armed force of this system. And so the anger was not just about racial injustice, it was about class injustice. So it was extremely inspiring. And then along comes Angela, De Angela uh, Robin D'Angelo, and what does she do? She plants in the minds of Black people, don't trust those whites. And then you know what she tells white people? She says, you have all the power, there's really no difference between 
some Amazon worker and Jeff Bezos, because you're both white. And whites control the wealth. Whites control the power. So don't give up a good thing. Don't start talking about uniting with black people because then you're going to lose your power. That's her message. And that's why she's loved by corporate America. She pits, she exacerbates, you know, real life. It, it exists. Obviously, racism exists. But is it the end of the story? It's part of the story. There's another part of the story. And the other part of the story was given witness by the Bernie candidacy, such that, as uh, I was discussing the other day with Brianna Joy Gray, she said to me, quote, every demographic under 30, Bernie won. That's a very critical fact, because they're the future. You're the future. Every demographic under 30, Bernie won, which means Black people, Latino people, they were willing to relate to a class platform. Yeah. So there was real possibility. There but still then, is. Yeah, but then you look at, you know, what came out of the Bernie movement and also, you know, the the Black Lives Matter movement at the time of George Floyd. There weren't, as far as I remember now, very many concrete demands with the George Floyd movement, at least any demands that went anywhere. And with Bernie as well, I mean, you, that's also a case where, and you point this out in your book, where mm -hmm. Bernie's rhetoric changed from 2016 to 2020, where he, he also... Um, sort of talking a lot more about identity. I don't think that's true. I mean, Bernie was severely Bernie was severely criticized for not being able to uh, not being able to synthesize class politics with identity politics. And as I said to you earlier, that's always been an enigma, or uh, I won't call it an enigma. That's always been a challenge for the left. Uh, because, as I said from the beginning, this issue of certain kinds of oppression not being reducible to uh, class oppression, that's always been a challenge. It, it's not easy. Uh, I don't want to use the word ne negotiate, but it's not easy to navigate. And he didn't, he didn't find the right formula. However, we should be very careful about it. He may not have found the right formula, but the fact remains that among your generation, he still won the majority of people. So he wasn't so he wasn't so far off in his formula. Maybe Kimberly Crenshaw didn't like what he was saying. Maybe Angela Davis didn't like what he was saying. Maybe Ta-Nehisi Coates didn't like what he was saying. Maybe Ibrahim X. Kennedy didn't like what he was saying. But guess what? Black working class people, Latino working class people, young people, they did like what he was saying. So we should be cautious about how much he failed in that particular area. Uh, there was probably areas for refinement, but we have to also remember revolutions don't happen overnight. This was the first real attempt at building a class politics in our country. It uh, it uh, uh, capitalized on the moment. And as Rosa Luxemburg says, the most important challenge for any working class movement is self-criticism. Hey, Norman, no, Norman, small point. Don't you think that Jesse Jackson's campaign in the 80s was also an attempt at class-based politics? Yeah, but it, it, it couldn't work because uh, it, the 84 and 88 were the beginning. You remember I said begins in the 80s, this process okay, right, of okay, right, working okay. class, the, uh, the destruction of the middle class, the hollowing out of the middle class. 
There was the core of the idea there, and it did galvanize people. But I can tell you, because I have vivid memories, the number of whites who embraced Bernie Sanders comprised mostly what you might call the white left, the left that was opposed to the war in Vietnam, the uh, left- Who embraced Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson. Yeah. Yeah, The white left uh, in 84, 88. We live in completely different times. Gotcha. Okay. And now the reality has solidified. Mm. There is this vast gap between the 20% and the 80%. And so Bernie's appeal was much more widespread than Jesse Jackson's. Jesse Jackson's, incidentally, bear in mind, just for your recollection, Jesse Jackson cobbled together what he called a rainbow coalition. That's what it was called. That's a prefigurement of identity politics, rainbow coalition. Bernie's was straightforward, old-fashioned class politics. Um, So uh, though I would say, yes, there was appeal uh, by Jesse Jackson to white workers. He tried. Successful, you know, I, I, I don't think, I think, you know, as I said, uh, the, the thing about Bernie Sanders is the times caught up with him. I was just reading, just as a footnote, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I was reading Paul Sweezy, and I was reading, he was the great Marxist economist, and I'm reading him from 1981. And he had at a certain point in his life given up on the white working class, and like many radicals, looked to the third world, China, Latin America, Che, Look for them to make the revolution because the white working class was hopeless. It's a very interesting fact, and I'm saying it for the first time on your program uh, because it struck me last night. He's writing in 1981. He's a brilliant economist, uh, Marxist economist, and he says, I'm, I'm almost quoting verbatim. He says, a crisis or an impasse has set in in the capitalist system, and he says it's possible that the white working class will no longer be reformist and it might go in a revolutionary direction. So he said to Marxists, he said, don't write off the white working class. There may be possibilities ahead. And then he went on to say he sure as hope hopes there are possibilities because the way we're going now, we're going to descend into barbarism or nuclear annihilation. I thought to myself, well, that really confirms to me how smart that guy was. You know, mm-hmm. 1980s, because most economists date the beginning of the decline of working class wages to the early 1980s. He saw it coming and he saw the consequences that it might actually revolutionize the white working class, which had been reformist since the end of the 19th century because the standard of living of white workers had gradually improved from the end of the 19th century, except for during the Depression. Uh, So um, uh, I think Jackson, there was a a core of an idea there, but it was too soon. Now it's real. Now it's a real possibility. Well, this takes uh, us to someone you devote a lot of space to in the book, which is Barack Obama, who I think was a response to Jesse Jackson because I think um, elites saw the appeal of Jesse Jackson in appealing to marginalized people and they needed to exploit the identitarian aspect of that 
to keep class-based politics out of uh, the establishment and out of our elections. And so Barack Obama comes along and you devote a lot of space to him. And um, one thing I find interesting, you use the term for him, you call him a stupefying narcissist. Mm-hmm. And, and reading the way you describe him, it's interesting. So you know, Trump's narcissism is very well documented, well known. People hear Trump and narcissism. Yeah, everyone can make that connection. But you make the point that and just looking, for example, at Obama's campaign promise, like the message of his campaign, you you point out that basically Obama made it so much about him that his presentation to the public was that if you elect me, that America will be healed. Racism will be healed if you just put me in the Oval Office. I will lead you to I'll lead you to the promised land. Yes, that's exactly what he did. He turned his election campaign or his handlers uh, because he had clever handlers, crooked, I mean, real base characters like David Axelrod, but, you know, clever experience. All white. Uh, all white. Yeah. His, um, as a matter of fact, his inner circle began to wonder, is this, you know, is this bad optics that all of uh, Obama's inner circle was white male? Um, in any event, what they did was they turned Barack Obama's candidacy into a national referendum. Are you a good person or are you a bad person? If you're a good person, you're going to vote for this black man. And if you're a bad person, you won't vote for him. So he he turned, it was a you know, it was a quite clever move at some level. Uh he turned the 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 uh, the election into a referendum, not on him, but on us. We were the ones who were uh being so to speak, being voted on by ourselves, of course. Are we a good people? And the other thing that he did was he turned himself into the culmination of the American idea that buried inside, deep inside the American idea was the one of freedom, equality, the the land of opportunity. And he was, if you can use that uh, Hegelian language, and he was the telos of the American idea. Deep, deep inside of the American idea hidden deep inside was Barack Obama. And now Barack Obama uh, emerged from the innards of the American soul, the innards of American history. And so it was a very, uh, you you are correct in my opinion. You said uh, Trump's narcissism was right on the surface and it was kind of uncouth. And it was, I'm not sure we should be using the past tense, this narcissism is right in the surface, and it's kind of uncouth, and it's kind of gross. Uh, but Barack Obama's was a quite clever narcissism, because he identified all of American history with him. So you were you you never knew when he was praising American history and when he was praising himself. So it looked like he was praising the American idea, but he was only praising the American idea for one reason, because it culminated and climaxed in him. That's what made the American idea so great. He would start out saying, let's say he'd give a speech. First of all, he didn't write any of the speeches, but the speeches that he read from the teleprompter. Written by white guys. Yeah. Yeah. All white guys. Yeah. God forbid he should have a black person. He had eight speech writers. God forbid one of them should not be white. Uh, Because Barack Obama, uh, he, because he attended for a couple of years, he attended Columbia and then he attended Harvard Law School. He internalized this idea, which here I think Cornell West was completely correct. 
he internalized the idea that white people are superior because that's they were the ones, the liberals, you know, that type, oh, Barack Obama is so smart. So again, they're good because they say he's smart. So uh, he internalized the idea of uh, whites being superior and um, he liked to be around them. It was a kind of thrill for him because the you know, Lawrence Summers is saying, oh, you're so brilliant, Barack Obama. And Lawrence Tribe at Harvard, the constitutional scholar says, Barack Obama's the most brilliant student I've had in 40 years. He knows relativity. He knows quantum physics. Okay. He never took a math course, but that's beside the point. He knows relativity and quantum physics. Then along comes Martha Minow, who was the um, head of Harvard Law School, the executive director, but also a prominent uh, professor there. Barack Obama is the most brilliant student I've had in 30 years. He's surrounded with all these white liberals who are constantly praising him. And he he thought these white folks are just really smart. And he, he internalized black people aren't so smart. Uh, Cornel West said, I remember at one point he said, um, Barack Obama has a has a problem with his black brothers. He has a yeah. problem. Yeah. The there's, only... an anecdote, there's an anecdote in that book that you cite, that biography of Obama by David uh, Garrow, uh, Shining Star, is, is that what it's yes. called? Where, uh, Rising Star. Rising Star. So and where Obama is dating a, uh, a woman uh, in Chicago, and he says to her, I can't be with you because you're not black, and I need to be with a black woman to get elected. And yes, it was, a, it was a, a peculiarity of black politics in Chicago that um, he, has, he didn't say it to her. She was shattered, actually. Uh, she's now uh, a professor at Oberlin College in Asian history. Um, she was shattered, uh, but his people around him said, if you want to win office in Chicago, you have to marry a black woman. Uh, and similarly, Obama didn't have a religious bone in his body. He was a completely secular uh, he was a beach bum from Hawaii. He liked to surf. Uh, if you look at uh, his history as depicted in David Garrow's 1,500-page biography biography of uh, Obama, he had three qualities. He was always smiling. He was always playing basketball. And he was also always uh, high on, I guess it's called chum. That's the word that's used in Chicago, in Hawaii for uh, marijuana. Do you know the expression? Uh, no, I didn't. No. I think it's C-H-O-O-M. Okay. I could be wrong, but I think it's correct. Um, so uh, he uh, he had religion was just completely alien to him. And then suddenly when he's on the campaign trail, he starts carrying out very prom carrying around very prominently a Bible, quoting from the Bible, talking about God. Every bone in his body is fake. He's just a woke creation. Uh, it's interesting, if you read David Axelrod's account of his years in politics, I think it's called My 40 Years in Politics, something like that. All this, uh, Axelrod was the kingmaker in Chicago politics. All the precursors to Obama, he used the same things, hope and change, uh, Hope and change, and yes, we can change. We can used it with every candidate. Every <laughs> candidate, he just took the same template, yeah. but with, with with Obama, it got traction because uh, 
first of all, uh, you remember it was 2008, and um, the, the United States was in a very sorry state because the economy had collapsed, and also because the war in Iraq yeah. um, had uh, turned into a complete disaster. So Americans were ready for something new. They were ready for hope and change. So they uh, and they were actually ready for something quite radical at that point. Uh, they were they they invested a lot. And so they he just recycled the campaign slogans, uh, but was very careful. There's no platform, no platform. And Obama actually is very frank about that. At one point, he describes himself in his memoir, he describes himself as, quote, the ultimate Rorschach test. People saw what they wanted in him. Exactly. That, was whole, yes. that was the whole point. Yeah. And then he said, at another point, I pulled off a neat trick. I got elected standing for nothing. <laughs> That's very accurate. And, That's and, and he calls it a neat trick. Yeah. And as I say in the book, it takes an awful brazen <laughs> an awful brazen politician to flaunt the fact that he got elected standing for nothing. It yes. was just a neat trick. Well, you know, speaking of uh, of brazen, what shows their whole messaging to be all the more cynical. So they present Obama as if you vote for him, then racism is healed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, America is one. And then what happens in 2016 when uh, Hillary is running and a bunch of Obama voters go and vote for Trump because they're, <laughs> they feel betrayed uh, because of all these neoliberal policies and the foreign interventions that Obama and Hillary uh, presided over. And what happens to those same voters who go from voting for the first black president to voting for Trump? Now, all of a sudden, all of them are racist. All, the, all of them are racist. <laughs> so, well, you know. Actually, uh, I, I, I argued with people at the time. I thought from the point of view of a white worker, uh, that was a rational decision to vote for Trump. Because on the one hand, Hillary Clinton was running on a platform of, I'm going to build on Obama. Yeah. Building on Obama for a large part of our country meant building on quicksand. Yeah. Another guy comes along. He's kind of a joker, a kind of weird guy. So they figure if it's a choice between what we know, yeah. which is quicksand, and a throw of the dice, what the hell? A throw of the dice. Yeah. And, and of course, I'm sure many people realize that Trump was pretending to care about the working class and talking about bringing jobs back. But at least he was saying it. Versus Hillary, well, who was denying the reality and actually proud of her neoliberal legacy. So in that situation, who are you going to vote for? It, it totally makes sense. Uh, also, Trump also claimed he was against foreign military interventions where, you know, for communities that bore the sacrifice of sending their, their kids off to die, that appealed. Um, and when the alternative is someone who is a unapologetic warmonger, then, yeah, it, that choice does make sense. The one positive thing I want to say about Obama, he doesn't strike me as being ideologically a neocon that he really really believes in you know no, he was not an ideologically yeah. a neocon yeah. he was ideologically uh, more or less in the same place as uh biden is now i don't think there's any uh great difference and he relied on advisors who were just solidly in the center of the political spectrum he he took robert gates from the bush administration yeah. to, to yeah. do the um handled the military. He took Lawrence Summers from the uh, Bill Clinton administration to handle the economy. Because Citibank uh, told him to. You and, remember, there's an anecdote of Citibank basically drawing up a list of who his cabinet should uh, should select. 
Yes. Uh, so uh, he took all the safe choices from among establishment figures. Yeah. 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 Um, so, okay. So your another major aspect of your book uh, concerns your own journey, um, the struggle you had when you were uh, denied tenure at DePaul. Uh, that this is two. This is this is almost two, this is almost two decades ago now. This was in the mid aughts, right? When two thousand six, two thousand seven, when this was happening, right? Seven. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that was because of a, a concerted campaign led against you uh, by people like Alan Dershowitz because of your work exposing them as being apologists for uh, Israeli atrocities, uh, and in the you know you exposing frauds like Joan Peters' book. Um, and, and also so Alan Dershowitz's book. And also Alan <laughs> book too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you then get into, you know, your reflections on academia and its place in the world now and how that's changed in, in recent years. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with what you went through and, and, uh, and with academia in general, because, you know, for some people it's completely divorced from their lives. So what to you is most important to impart about what, what you took away from that experience? Um, first of all, um, I don't dwell on the experience much anymore. It's past. I'm past retirement age, and I'm not going to get a job in academia. Everybody I know in academia in my age cohort has already retired, so I don't really dwell on it. Uh, the things I would say with, with regard to my case was I personally don't believe I was uh, denied tenure and then blacklisted. I don't believe it was because of my politics per se. Uh, academia is a pretty freewheeling place. Uh, you can pretty much say anything. And in, in the humanities, the more insane things you say, the more you're rewarded. Not true in the natural sciences, but in the humanities. I think the problem uh, from the point of view of uh, my detractors was that I was, I think I can say I was pretty effective. I had a public life. I didn't just have an academic life. I didn't speak at academic conferences. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I never attended a political science convention. I, I never, I, I'm going to, you know, people are going to, if I make these admissions, people are going to say, well, how do you think he deserves tenure? I never attended the political science convention. I didn't belong to the American Political Science Association. I never read a political science journal. They had the journals, political science became very mathematical. Uh, and I, I had no idea what was going on in those journals. I never read the political science journals. I had I had no relationship. I can't even say a tangential relationship with the political science uh, field, discipline. I basically went my merry way. I tried to remain productive. I was, I think, by any reckoning, okay, not by any reckoning, but by a reasonable reckoning. I was a good professor, uh, very committed to my students. Um, so I normally would have passed muster, but there was a problem. The problem was I also had a public political life. I was speaking everywhere. I was in, I think it's fair to say, high demand. And during that particular decade, basically from 2000 to 2010, the era that climax begins with the second intifada and then climaxes with Operation Cast Lead uh, in 2007, um, 
I was getting audiences wherever I went of between 500 and probably between 500 and 1500 people. I'm saying even at small schools, even at small yeah. schools, I had become a force to reckon with. And it was that that they wanted to stop. It was that that had to be, the, the plug had to be pulled on me. And basically the strategy of people like Alan Dershowitz, besides the personal hurt, and there was a, per, a lot of personal hurt, hurt, the programs I did in, on um, Democracy Now!, they became like the Rocky Horror, uh, Rocky Horror, what's that show called? Movie called Rocky Horror. The Rocky Horror Picture Show, yeah. And, and yeah, you're referring right. to, when you, what, to when you debated Dershowitz yeah. on Democracy Now! People would watch it on Saturday nights, and it's different, uh, every Saturday night, and you know probably they were stoned, and they would watch it, and it became a kind of cult item among many people. So uh, there was that personal hurt by Professor Dershowitz, but the bigger issue was he felt, and many of his supporters felt, if he could say this guy Finkelstein couldn't even get tenure at a third-rate university, then he's a real loser. And so that's why they wanted to deny me the tenure. They didn't particularly give a darn about uh, DePaul University. Right. I remember during the during the uh, uh, um, uproar over my candidacy, Somebody wrote to some uh, blog, a person wrote, uh, somebody said, well, maybe Finkelstein doesn't deserve tenure. And another person wrote back, let's be clear. We're talking about DePaul University. And the person wrote, the first time I ever heard of DePaul University was when I heard Norman Finkelstein was teaching there. And the last time I ever heard of it was when I heard he was denied tenure there. Which... There's some truth to that, I think. So they didn't really care about DePaul University per se. Uh, they wanted to, to discredit me by showing I wasn't even worthy of tenure at DePaul University. So that to me was one of the one lesson, namely, it wasn't what I was saying, but that I was uh, politically engaged, politically involved. And so I had to uh, had to be stopped. In academia, I was considered, on the Palestine issue, I was considered quite conservative. You know, I opposed, I didn't support a two states. I didn't support one state. I still thought two states was the only viable option and so forth. So in terms of my words, my convictions, it was pretty conservative uh, by academic standards. Um, so that was one lesson from my experience. And from today, I would say the main lesson I would, I would want to draw for my current teaching, because I do now adjunct here and there. Right now I'm teaching the laws of war at uh, Hunter College, an absolute delight to me. Students are wonderful, smart, really. It's a, it's a credit to the uh, city university system. That's why I hate people like Bill Maher. Uh, a few weeks ago, he was, what do these kids need education for? Why? Because they get to broaden their minds. Mm -hmm. They get to think about things bigger than finding the job. They can talk about ideas. And the students are wonderful. It's like, you know, I, I get excited every Thursday night. Right now I'm teaching a Thursday late afternoon to evening. Uh, it's a thrill. I even extra prepare and I get nervous all week. I have to be on top form because these students, you know, uh, I, I owe it to them. Uh, so I still teach. I would say uh, a lot of the problem 
Yeah, I had this discussion with Brianna Joy Gray, and she said, well, you have to acknowledge the right wing still calls the shots in academia, that they're the ones passing all these laws which are illegalizing teaching this and illegalize teaching that, and so on and so forth. And yes, the right wing still commands a presence and is still a menace. But I said to her, what I'll say to you, it wasn't the right wing that invented trigger warnings. It wasn't the right wing that invented safe spaces. Yeah. It wasn't the right wing that became very adamant on this issue of what pronouns to address students in class. That was not the right wing. And I think we have to be honest that there is there are elements to the repression now going on in higher education that were conjured, created, fabricated by a so-called left, and that they are really pernicious to the point that I literally, I'm not engaging hyperbole, I literally sweat before I make a joke in class. Who might I offend? Who's going to go down to human resources? Uh, I, I, I've had occasion to be browbeaten by students in emails about the question of pronouns. And I will call you by your name, but I will not use a pronoun which, in my opinion, contradicts your biological identity. I'm not going to do it. And listen, I'm nearing 70. Okay, I'm not a, I'm not starting out in academia. I'm not aiming for a tenure track job. My show is over. But I still worry because I like to teach. I still worry. And that kind of pull that's been cast over academia, I'm sorry, that's not the right. Yes, you could say there's a lot of legislation about uh certain books that are used, uh, and there are debates in which the right is very active on school curricula, and I recognize those as genuine problems. However, I think a, a honorable person on the left has to also acknowledge that the left has played its role in uh, making academia a, a more repressive place and also, I would add two things. It makes academia a very boring place because you go into these certain courses and you have to say what the party line is. So people don't honestly give vent to the thoughts running through their head because it's now taboo. Right. So it makes uh, academia a boring place. And I would have to say, thirdly, it significantly dumbed down the curriculum in the humanities. I had a young man, very bright guy, and he went. Uh, came up to me at the end of one class, and he just said boldly, boldly, he said, Professor Finkelstein, will you be my mentor? I had never had a student do that to me before. Uh, he was, he's from Haiti. Yes, I think he's, he's from Haiti. He said, will you be my mentor? Well, there's no way I'm going to say no to that. Uh, so I agreed to, and he said his current majors were business and psychology. I said, those are not majors. Those are trades. If you want to be serious, we're changing your majors. He says, well, what do you recommend? I said, I recommend, if you want to go to law school, I recommend English and philosophy. 
because law is basically about two things, how to reason and how to compose your thoughts in good prose. So English and philosophy. He writes me a week later. He says, I've changed my majors. I said, really, what's your majors? He said, English and philosophy. Okay, now he said, I want you to sit down and help me choose courses. So we go to philosophy department. I, uh, uh, this you won't believe. You have to go to see it. You know how many philosophy courses were being offered? Brace yourself. Four. The whole four. Normally it's about 30 in a department. Four. Because nobody wants a major in philosophy anymore because it doesn't bring you a job. Right. And then we go to English. So what are the course offerings? Haitian American writers, Haitian American women writers, Latina X, Latin X writers, Latin X trans writers. So I'm looking, okay, you could say Normie or an old fogey, but I'm looking for Shakespeare. I'm looking for the 19th century British authors because I want this person to learn how to write. I want him to look at the best, as Bertrand Russell called it. When Bertrand Russell was asked, what should you read? He said, read only the very best and forget the rest. And I want this guy to learn how to write. Because, now you may say that's snobbish, you may say that's elitist. No, you know what it is? It's about allowing these people who come from tough backgrounds to be competitive with graduates of Harvard and graduates of Columbia, and graduates of Princeton. I want them to be able to compete. I want them to be able to write in their briefs quotes from Shakespeare, like Scalia used to do. I want them to be able to come into the courtroom and have a sophisticated vocabulary. I want them to be able to compete with the best and to prevail, to triumph. So I'm looking for quality literature. There was nothing to be found. We finally, I finally found two courses, two courses, and there were probably around 30 course offerings. Filipino female writers in the English department. Now, excuse me for being incorrect, politically incorrect, but how many Filipino female writers are there in the United States that you need a whole course devoted to it. Is this a serious department or is it just a stupid, empty, vacuous uh, identity politics? No, I don't accept it. I don't accept it, you know why? As I said, because it grates on me that here are young people who are fighting for a place in life. You know as well as I do how hyper-competitive the job market is now. And they're coming after work. Some of them, no fault of their own, they're falling asleep in class because they're working two jobs. And they have so many family responsibilities on top of it. And when, when they're willing to make the investment, why are you giving them crap to read? Why are you giving them Ibram X. Kendi to read when they can be reading Du Bois? So it makes me angry at what I see what's happening because you are, you know, all these elite people from uh, Martha's Vineyard who say, yeah, you know, identity politics is good. We need Ibram X. Kendi on the curriculum. Yeah. As they send their kids to private schools 
from age from kindergarten on up and where the kids are getting a classical education. It's all great for them, but not for us. Last question. We are witnessing right now something that I've never seen in my lifetime on the left, which is you have anti-war sentiment politically now when it comes to this proxy war in Ukraine. Incredibly marginalized, to the point where there's not a single member of Congress who identifies as progressive, from Bernie Sanders to the squad to the entire Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, willing to challenge the Biden administration's policy. And every time it's come up for a vote, they voted to fund uh, hundreds of or tens of billions of dollars for this proxy war in Ukraine. And you go over to leftist progressive media, the space for dissent is still pretty marginal. And I'm wondering, you know, as a leftist all your life, been involved in anti-war circles all your life, um, your reflections on that, seeing this unfold? Well, it's obviously an appalling situation. First of all, most of the critics of the war, the handful that they are, are not people on the left. With the exception of Noam Chomsky, who's been a critic of the war, most of the prominent critics are mainstream figures like John Mearsheimer, liberals like Jeffrey Sachs, decent conservatives like Alfred DeZayas, and you can include somebody like Tucker Carlson. Once you get to the left, with the exception of Professor Chomsky, there's when you call you know the solid left, there's there's scarcely a person you can name of you know prominence. Obviously, you. I'm talking about the older generations, people who you used to look to. So that to me is an irony in itself. That when I'm trying to find on the on the web or elsewhere criticisms of what's currently going on at any particular moment. There's simply nobody to look to on the left with the exception of yourself um, among um, a few others. Yeah. And uh, the older generation. That's number one. Number two, we're facing a you know, potentially catastrophic moment. It's awful enough as it is. I haven't a clue and I don't think anybody else knows, but Maybe as many, if you take the numbers on their face, as I say, I acknowledge I don't have a clue, but they're using figures like 200,000 young people on the Russian side and 200,000 people on the Ukrainian side have been killed. Now, maybe the Russian figure has been inflated, but I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, 400,000 lives lost. I mean, that is, that's kind of unbelievable. Remember, during the Vietnam War, the total number of Americans killed was 53,000 soldiers. In, okay, three to four million civilians were killed. For sure, that's a horror of horrors. But we're talking about strictly soldiers. 200,000 on either side is an astronomical figure. And what's most shocking of all, what's most shocking of all is the war didn't have to happen. That's the main message you get from reading anything serious on the topic. There was a perfectly reasonable way to end the, uh, to prevent the conflict, preempt the conflict with 
an absolutely satisfactory outcome. All NATO had to say was, we're not going to admit Ukraine. So Ukraine's sovereignty isn't violated. NATO, NATO isn't under some obligation to admit Ukraine. You know, it's like a party. Not everybody's invited to the party. And if you're not invited, your, your, your personal sovereignty hasn't been invited. NATO could have just said, um, we're not going to invite you into, uh, into our organization. And the only other thing that had to be solved was allow the um, people in Eastern Ukraine to speak in the language that they feel most comfortable and to practice the kind of culture that they feel most comfortable. That's it. Those were the only two demands. And there was a simple solution. They were both, they were available for the Ukrainian government to be tolerant and for, as Lula said, uh, the current president of Brazil, he said at the very start of the conflict in interview with uh, NATO, uh, interview with Time magazine, he said, the EU could just have said, now is not the time, that's all. Now is not the time. And NATO could have also said, now is not the time. So there was a simple solution. It wasn't taken, and I'm going to tell you something. It breaks my heart. I happen to live near Coney Island. You know what Coney Island is called? Or the Brighton Beach side. Coney Island has two sides, the Brighton Beach side, the Coney Island side. You know what the Brighton Beach side is called? It's always been called since I moved here, Little Odessa by the Sea. Yeah. Little Odessa by the Sea. It's all Ukrainians and Russians. Before, you know, until maybe two years ago, we didn't even differentiate between them. They were just Russians, but, you know, they would say Ukraine. So I know a lot of these people, large number of Ukrainian young people, they left because they got the special status so they were able to flee. So a large number. Young people like, you know, 20, 18, so nice, friendly, and they're being exterminated. They're being wiped out. I I have to be honest, I don't have a warm spot in my heart for Ukrainians. You know, we grew up, you know, if you grew up in a Jewish home, especially Eastern European, you were terrified of Ukrainians. Terrified. Why, because they were, they were seen as collaborators with the Nazis? No, because their whole history, if you look at World War I, there was the head of the Ukrainian uh, national movement was a guy named Petluria. And the estimates are they killed between 50 and 200,000 Jews. Hmm. If you look at, I was reading Rosa Luxemburg's uh, memoirs, because uh, she was, she did, she covered, she was originally Polish, uh, and she was part of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, uh, representing Poles. Uh, she had her own part, political party. But during the 1905 revolution, during the 1905 revolution, she was covering it. Now, she not only went there, but she also, in the, in the German party newspapers, she was a correspondent. And if you look at the areas, she's, she writes a lot about the pogroms against Jews, the most horrible, horrifying, ghastly crimes committed against the bodies, you know, the physical bodies of Jews. And she describes it in excruciating detail what, what they were doing 
You look at where the pogroms are occurring. I have on my website, if you personally are interested, I, I quote all the passages in the pogroms in Rosa Luxemburg's uh, rep, uh, reportage. Kiev, Mariupol. Yeah. You could see they're all happening in the Ukraine. Yeah. So we growing up, my parents having been from Eastern Europe, from Poland, from Warsaw, they dreaded the Ukrainians, and that was hammered into us, you know, worse than the Nazis, because Germany had an anterior history, you know, the land of Goethe, the, the land of uh, culture, the land of culture. Ukraine did not have a reputation for the land of culture. Let's be honest about it. It had a reputation for the land of uh, pogromists. So I, I did not have a warm feeling but then you live in the neighborhood, you get to know the people, and you see this ghastly, horrible thing unfolding, which never had to happen. And this thing called the left, it doesn't even make, forget about being against the war. Forget about being against the war. Forget about being critical of the war, you know, as he used to call it in my um, leftist days, critical support for the war. There aren't even hearings in Congress. You could just have congressional hearings on yeah. the war. That's yeah. all. Yeah. Okay, you could say, I don't oppose the war. You could say, I'm not even critical of the war. But we, you know, my job is we should ferret out all the facts. Let's have hearings. You could have invited John Mearsheimer to the hearing. You could have invited Jeffrey Sachs to the hearing. Yeah. You could have had earmarked uh, former, uh, I, don't know, I don't remember his title, McGregor. What's his uh, title? Douglas McGregor, yeah. Uh, What's his uh, army he, title? He's a retired army colonel. Yeah, you could have invited Colonel uh, McGregor. Uh, just hearings. Yeah. Nothing. The level uh, you of- could invite you can invite the chairman and the joint chiefs of staff, uh, Mark Miller, who called for, called for negotiation. The only only voice, prominent voice in U.S. political life to do that. The level of cowardice, yeah, cowardice. It's beyond. It's beyond stupidity. And then Bernie, who, you know. There's been a lot of disappointment with Mr. Sanders. But the biggest disappointment is when he started to use the line, when people criticized him, he started to use the line, who's paying you? Mm. <laughs> who's paying you? It's You can't even laugh at that. The same smear um, used against him. I mean, he was accused. Exactly. Of, uh, yeah. Uh, Norman, we, we have to wrap in one minute. So uh, just some closing comments here. My closing comment is, I I read you carefully now. You do something which other people don't do. You actually work. You're not counting views. You're not counting shares. You're not uh, measuring your presence on the web. You're actually sitting down, reading documents, doing serious research. And uh, so on that grounds alone, I respect hard work. You know, I... I said that to Bianca Joy Gray the other day. She says, well, can't you say something you know, positive about uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and all the others? I said, no, because I respect hard work. I'm not into slogans, and I'm not into buzzwords. I respect W.E.B. Du Bois. He put in nine hours of hard labor every day. 
Nine hours he sat at his desk working, and then before turning in, he would read a quality novel to maintain his literary grace when he writes. I respect that, and that's why I respect you. I respect the hard work. Um, and so uh, I'm very glad to be on your program. Well, thanks, Norman. And, you know, I'm sorry to turn this into a mutual admiration session, but of course, all the work you've done, so exhaustive, so meticulous, and very informative and inspiring to me. And I've learned a lot from it. So thank you. And it's uh, it's great to see you now out with something personal. This is your most personal work yet, I think. Yeah, it's in lieu of an autobiography. Yeah. Literally, I my life hasn't been interesting enough to write a full-fledged autobiography. <laughs> But I've had thoughts, I've been, and I have reflections, and I wanted to pass on to your generation and succeeding generations, uh, I wanted to pass on uh, some insight about what radical politics is and what radical politics isn't, and stay away from the feds, stay away from the radical preening, stay away from the radical posing, stay away from the dread, the dreads as if that makes you radical. I went through all of that. I went through all of that. I regret it. And every generation makes its mistakes, but it's always useful to have somebody who will at least give you some insights what old mistakes you shouldn't repeat. The book is called I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It. Norman Ficklestein, thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome.